Welcome to the Reality Revolution. I'm your host, Brian Scott. We have a very interesting Neville Goddard lecture called the J.E.N.P. Manuscripts. In looking at the lectures, I've skipped this several times just because of the title. And many of you may not even click on it because the title is so unusual. It's amazing how much I've learned about the Bible from Neville Goddard more than anything else. And I studied the Bible in many different ways and read it over and over prior to ever knowing anything about Neville Goddard. But in particular, he refers to the J.E.N.P. manuscripts. He has sort of referred to them in the past. And this comes from a hypothesis that various sections of the Pentateuch are assigned to various authors who are identified by the letters J, E, D, and P. It is called the documentary hypothesis, as this hypothesis was developed by a number of Jewish and theologically liberal Christian scholars in the 17th to 19th centuries. Essentially, when you're looking through the book of Genesis, you have these different authors that wrote it, and you can tell by keywords and unique characteristics to that author. The J documents are the sections, verses, or in some cases, parts of verses that were written by one or more authors who preferred to use the Hebrew name Yahweh or Yehovah to refer to God. It is proposed that this author wrote about 900 to 850 BC. The E documents are the texts that use the name Elohim for God and were supposedly written around 750 to 700 BC. So there are portions of the book of Genesis that are older than the beginning parts. And P stands for priest and identifies the texts in Leviticus and elsewhere in the Pentateuch that were written by a priest or priest during the exile in Babylon after 586 BC. A lot of times you get people referring to the fire and brimstone laws that are in Leviticus and very clearly when looking at the texture of those sentences that was a different author than the one that wrote the beginning of Genesis. So you have Moses as the supposed author in many cases, or it's possible that he was integrating different writings into his own writing because where did Moses get a knowledge of the prehistory and the patriarchs and that kind of thing? Anyway, this lecture is called J.E.N.P manuscripts and let's hear what Neville has to say about it the J.E.N.P. manuscripts delivered on October 3rd 1969 I think you'll find tonight very interesting in the book of Genesis which begins one of the manuscripts there are three that we have the J the E and the P manuscripts that's all the authors that we know of, and no one knows who they are. Scholars claim all kinds of things for these initials, but regardless of that, tonight we will begin with the E, which begins with the 15th chapter of Genesis. It doesn't mention the first 14, and here is the story. As the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a dread and a great darkness fell upon him. The Lord said to him, Know for a surety that your descendants will be sojourners in a land 
that is not theirs, and they will be slaves there, and they will be oppressed for four hundred years, and after that they will come out with great possessions. Genesis 15.12 Abram believed, and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. Here we see that it is not what man is, but what man trusts God to do that saves him. Here he believes that God the Father has prepared the way for his banished ones to return. He firmly believed that there was a way. He accepted the verdict that they would be enslaved for 400 years. Now, when you read it, you might think in terms of time as you and I think of time, but that is not part of the mystery. In the Hebrew alphabet, each letter has a numerical value and a symbolical value. The last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Toph, is the numerical value of 400 and the symbol value of a cross. The cross is the body that you wear. It doesn't mean 400 years or 4,000 years or four of anything. It's simply the numerical value of the cross, which is the last letter. When you reach the end of the journey, when there is a way prepared to bring you out of this experience in the world of death, for here is a world of death. Everything begins, it waxes, it wanes, and it dies but everything. The very stars are melting, everything is dying, but it must first reach its fullness and then it disappears. But he has prepared a way for his sons who were banished into the world of death to return to him. And when they return, they return with great possessions, certainly not anything on earth like homes since everything here dissolves and disintegrates. And so we must find what the possession is that comes out of this experience in the world of death. Here, no matter what you have, you are enslaved by it. You buy a home and you start paying insurance on it right away to protect it against all kinds of things. Here in the Western world, earthquakes all over the world, fires, certain sections, hurricanes, but no matter what it is, it's against loss. You get a huge, big diamond you're so proud of it, and you insure it against loss, and you pay on it for the rest of your days. Many a person owning a fortune in diamonds puts them in a vault, and they never see them and pays on them year after year. But they have the feeling of possession. All they do is pay the insurance on them, because they wouldn't run the risk of wearing them in public. So they get duplicates made out of inferior material and wear that while they know they actually own the original in the vault. Now that's an actual fact and that's all over the world. So here it is not anything that you own in this world that you will take out and call it great possessions. Tonight we will see what this great possession is that we actually take out after the journey of 400 years. The 400 years will be determined in a certain manner. The Old Testament is a prophetic blueprint which is fulfilled in the New. It is not cut and dried so that you can actually see exactly what it is talking about. It's a foreshadowing in a not altogether conclusive or immediately evident way. Then it happens and is recorded in the New, but even then it is not, I would say, conclusive and vivid so that man can see it. So we must search the scriptures to see what you and I must experience in order to depart from this world of death 
and take with us this fantastic gift that we actually acquire by coming into the world of death. You and I pre-existed. When we speak of God, there is only God, so he could send no one but himself. For the Son and the Father are one. He sends his sons into the world, and it takes all the sons to make the Father. Here in this world there is only God, the Father, wearing these garments that are the crosses, these garments of flesh and blood. This is our cross, and we bear it to the very end. When we come to the end, then we are awakened, and when we awaken we discover who we are, that we are God the Father. In this world we do not know it. Here we don't recognize each other, and yet we were loving brothers before we came down, intimate, loving, wonderful brothers, all loving each other in the most intimate, wonderful manner. And then we put on the mask, the cross of flesh and blood, and we are so completely hidden from view, we do not recognize each other, and we fight each other, and we do everything in this world of horror. Then we are gathered one by one and brought back into that original state, but this time with great possessions, and the possession is something entirely different from anything that man has dreamt of. The possession is to have life in ourselves, not simply to be an animated body as I am now and you are, but to actually have life in ourselves. Now the book of Zechariah and the word Zechariah means Jehovah remembers. The awakening man remembers and that's what the whole book is about. The awakening man remembers. When you begin to awaken, this whole thing will come back. The whole vast memory of what you were told before the venture will begin to return. Now let me share with you an experience. It happens the very night that you are awakened from this world of dream. When the voice calls you from the tomb and you awaken within the holy sepulcher, which is your skull, to discover that you have actually been there for unnumbered centuries dreaming this dream of life and the dream comes to an end on a certain note and this is the very night you begin to remember who you really are and the whole drama unfolds before you and within you and then you know who you are now we're told in Zechariah the eighth chapter thus says the Lord I will return to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem will be called the faithful city, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain, and in the streets of the city shall be numberless boys and girls playing in its streets, 835. Now you read that and you wonder, what on earth does that mean in a book called a book towards the revelation of God and his plan for the salvation of humanity? What on earth would that be? Yet may I tell you, the symbolism and the imagery is perfect. One night, and I hope it's not too far from now, but I do not know. No one knows when it comes to the individual, for we are gathered one by one. You are so unique in the building of the restored temple that you aren't drawn with another. You're drawn singly. You are a unique being. Here, the prophet Zechariah which simply means Jehovah remembers, here he describes in the most vivid imagery, Jerusalem, as it will be when city and temple are restored and the exiles have returned. The image of this night that begins your awakening. I fell asleep in the normal manner that I have done over the years, not expecting anything, 
And then came a dream. Here I am, in the most glorious city. No building was higher than three or four stories, certainly not more than a four or a walk up. No need of any contraption to take me up. The sidewalks were wider than any streets we have in the city. There is no street, no boulevard as wide as the sidewalks. Just imagine how wide the streets. And they were filled with boys and girls. I mean young boys, young girls, not even quite teenagers, just lovely, laughing, healthy boys and girls. There were concert grand pianos on the sidewalk at stated intervals so that one could not interfere with the other. Artists would come and play and it was all just for the joy of those who were present. There was no charge, they just played. And they all had their following made up of boys and girls and they were their heroes. I said at one grand piano. There came this enormous crowd following their hero, a great artist. He came over and it was unwritten code that no one could ask anyone seated to rise. He could be there always, no one would ask him to get up. But as he came over, I rose and gave him the bench. He thanked me and sat down to play, and as he played, his music formed geometrical patterns. The most glorious patterns came out seemingly out of the instrument, all in color. But what beauty, what artistry, as it came out of what he played. As I stood next to him, I knew that if I could arrest within me a certain imaginal activity, that what I saw, this beautiful thing coming out of the piano in all these forms, that I could arrest it. Then I arrested within me this activity, and here this music was frozen. I looked at it, and as I looked at it, the tone that I arrested increased in volume within me like a sustained note, and that sustained note within me began to build up and began to awaken. I felt myself awakening from this dream, but instead of awakening as I would awake this morning, I awoke in the holy sepulchre, my skull, to find I had been there in this strange, strange, wonderful, fantastic dream. A horrible dream throughout the centuries. Then I knew innately what I must do to get out. And so knowing it, I got out. And all the imagery of scripture concerning the birth of God surrounded me. And I knew at that moment who I was. Months later, came another unfolding and then I knew beyond all doubt who I am that the whole thing is only God playing all the parts in the world that every being in the world though he thinks himself a little being unknown unwanted and shunned by the world he really is God wearing his cross as he swore to himself that he would wear it for the 400 years the 400 meaning only wearing a body of flesh and blood so the tone as we are told in scripture marvel not at this those who are in the tombs will hear my voice and come forth. John 5.28 Those who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And you think of a cemetery. You think of a graveyard. No, the tomb is your skull. You are actually buried in your skull. And the you that is buried are God and his name is I Am. That is God's name forever and forever. Exodus 3.13-15 And there is no other name for him. Your own wonderful human imagination is God, buried in your own wonderful skull, and that is the holy sepulcher. Don't go to Egypt to find I. Don't go into the Near East in what is called the Holy Land. It is not there. You'll not in eternity find it outside of yourself. You are buried in your own wonderful skull, and the being buried is God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now when do we awaken? That dream precedes it only by the night. And you can't really know when it's going to come. But I'll tell you, the power in you is the gift that you bring back. You have then the power to stop the entire world, but the entire world and have it stand still and examine it and then start it at will, no matter how long you arrest it. It will have no knowledge of being arrested. It will continue from the moment of arrestment as though not a thing had happened. And that interval between arrestment and release within you could be unnumbered centuries, but it would have no knowledge for there could be no change without time. Space is a facility for experience, but time is a facility for changes in experience. When you arrest time, then there could be no change. If you arrested it now, at this moment, and then kept it so for a thousand years, nothing could age, because nothing could change without time, and time is simply the facility for changes in experience. So, you simply have time within you, and you arrest it, as I did that night, and saw this most glorious thing coming out seemingly from what this artist produced on the keyboard of this concert grand. As I held it and looked at it, I was holding a tone for the tone sustained it. As I held the tone, that sustained tone and the word translated voice in scripture, if you look it up in your biblical concordance, it means noise, sound, the sustained noise, the sustained sound. It is really what is also called in scripture the blowing of the trumpet. The trumpet is simply a reverberation and that thing reverberates like a noise, a storm wind within you. As it continues in that sustained note, you awaken. You awaken not like you're ever awakened before. You awaken from the dream of life. Morning after morning you awaken from the little dream of the night. This time you awaken from the dream of life. Because you see the whole vast world as it really is, and not as you believe it to be through the senses as you read. So he said, Believe me, I and the Father are one. John 10.30 I and the Father are one. Can I be one with my father if I am really one with him? And if he's a father, then he has a son. And therefore, I can't then be his son if I am one with the father. So then who is the son? I and my father are one. I have become the father, but he still is a father and therefore show me the son. And that comes five months after this experience. And I am one with the father. Now how on earth can a man be his father? How on earth can he be not only his father, but his earthly father's father? Doesn't make sense, does it? But I tell you it's true, and all these things you are going to experience, everything in scripture you will experience. All of these are adumbrations, foreshadowings, and you are going to experience them. Now in the world here, you go through the oppressions as promised in the book, the 15th chapter of Genesis and they will be oppressed for 400 years, they will be slaves. What man in this world is not a slave of the body that he wears? No matter how rich you are, how powerful you are, can you command any servant of yours to eat your food for you and assimilate it? And what he can't assimilate, eliminate. Is there any man on earth so powerful that he can command one of his slaves to eliminate what he can't assimilate? Must not he perform all the normal functions of this cross of flesh and blood? Isn't he a slave of it? He has to eat and drink, and he has to assimilate and eliminate. 
You need not be a wealthy man and live in a home. You can sleep on the outside. You can go in the nude. You don't have to have shelter and raiment, but you do have to have food, having food. You've got to eat it yourself. Eating it, you have to assimilate it yourself. And assimilating it, you've got to eliminate what you can't assimilate. And that makes you a slave of the cross that you wear. No one in this world has ever been so wise or so powerful that he can forego these functions. The day he forgoes the functions, they bury him, cremate him, or put him in the grave. But the real grave is your skull. That's where the real you, your own wonderful human imagination, is buried. There it remains until the end of the journey when you are awakened from the dream and you come out as the dreamer, and the dreamer is God. He was always God, so you come out from the dream. He has prepared a way for his banished sons to return, and all the sons together collectively form the Father. But we are gathered one by one. You are so unique you cannot be called in pairs or in groups. You are called one by one. I'll tell you, the night you are called, it begins with the dream that I've just mentioned in the eighth chapter of Zechariah. Jehovah remembers, so I will send the Holy Spirit, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you, John 14, 26. So here we are told, the story and the visible presence, who tells it disappears. Well, where does he go? He sends the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth, but he proclaimed, I am the truth. So who can he send but himself? So God himself enters death's door with those who enter, and he lays down in the grave with man in visions of eternity until they awake and see the linen clothes lying there that the females had woven for them. Blake Milton, Plate 32. Yes, my mother wove this garment of flesh and blood, and I will come out of it one day, as I have and I saw it. There was what my mother wove me. It's called in scripture the linen garments. And I, the invisible being, no one could see me. And I am feeling and hearing this power within me. It sounded like a storm wind, the noise spoken of when I heard the voice. But the voice was simply my own voice because I arrested what I saw just through contemplating the beauty that came out of that music. As I arrested that one tone, the tone continued to support what I'm seeing. For the whole thing was supported and it was supported. It was conjured by the tone and supported by the tone. If the tone stopped, it would vanish. But if I sustained the tone, the tone would continue. And the tone continued. And in continuing, it awoke me. So there is a tone in man. It's a unique tone. That one day you will arrest. When you arrest it, it will continue as a tone. And that sustained tone, as we are told, a sustained tone could break. If related to the tone, a glass, I am told that Caruso could take a glass and get its pitch and then hit that note and sustain it and break the glass. Well, there's a tone in man, and one day you will intuitively know that tone. It will come in the form of a pattern, a beautiful pattern, and you will arrest it. It's a frozen tone. You will sustain it. And as you sustain the tone, it will crack the shell in which you have been completely sealed for unnumbered centuries. Thousands of years you have been dreaming this dream. You didn't begin in the womb, and you do not end in the grave. You are an immortal being that came down into the world of death. Here you are in the world of death dreaming it, and one day you will see exactly what I saw in the eighth chapter. I fulfilled the eighth when I saw the boys and girls. They filled the streets, and they were so happy. Nothing sad about them, just a happy, wonderful crowd. 
each with their own individual hero who played these grand pianos. As he played and I saw the beauty that came out of the piano within me, I had the desire to arrest what I'm seeing. It's so beautiful. I did not by holding it with my hand. I arrested what I saw by stopping an activity within my own imagination. That's where the power was. As I arrested it, the note continued and it was a stained note and it woke me. I felt myself waking from a dream only to discover I was not on my bed where I fell asleep. I was in the holy sepulcher, my own sealed skull. Then I knew intuitively how to get out and that shell was cracked and out I came to be surrounded by all the imagery of the birth of God as told us in the story of the birth of Jesus for Jesus simply means Jehovah saves and the only savior is Jehovah. So when he is born, Jehovah is born. Therefore, you come out from the shell into which you placed yourself. How did you get into that shell? How on earth? We know of no way even today with all of our knowledge, we can go to the moon, we can do all kinds of things and no biologist has discovered how an egg is fertilized. How on earth can the sperm penetrate that which is sealed? It is an egg and there is no hole in that egg. Yet unless it is fertilized, it cannot bear the chicken. It cannot bear the child. It cannot bear the animal. Here is an egg completely sealed, but it must be fertilized. The sperm must penetrate the surface of that egg or it cannot become alive. So how on earth was this thing penetrated so that it was made alive and then to come forward in the likeness of the one who penetrated it? For all things bring forth after their kind. For if God is bringing forth after his kind, it has to be God that is born. So the egg penetrated was the skull. It's not simply with the eyes open and the nostrils and the mouth and the ears. It was a sealed dome. You and I entered these domes and God entered with us and actually became us. God became as I am, that I may be as he is. And you awake to find that you are God the Father. Because his only begotten son calls you Father and you have no doubt in your mind as to who he is when he calls you Father and who you are. So only until this relationship of father-son is revealed to man is the journey over. Last night as I retired, I was thinking on this theme which I am trying to express tonight. Then I woke this morning about, I would say, 2.30, but I did retire quite early so I had a good solid sleep. Seemingly dreamless sleep until the very end. At the very end, here I find myself in New York City in the Plaza Hotel. It was much bigger than the plaza as I know it, much more roomy, but the same old world harmony and graciousness that you find in the plaza of today. I had just checked out, and I looked up to see one checking in, and he's my brother Fred, my sixth brother. I went over and I greeted him, and then I turned to my left and here is my nephew Philip, who is his son. I didn't know my brother was in New York City, and I didn't know that Philip was, so I brought Philip over, and then the strangest thing happened. I turned to my brother Fred, who is the father of Philip, and I said to Fred, Oh, I want you to meet my nephew. They acted as though they didn't know each other, that the father-son relationship was completely unknown. I said to my brother Fred, This is my f nephew, Philip. You've met his father and his mother, haven't you? Haven't you met Flo and Fred? I spoke to him as though he were another. He answered as though he knew the ones of whom I spoke, because he had no knowledge of being the father of Philip, and Philip had no knowledge of being the son of the one that I'm introducing him to. Then you turned to scripture, and Philip said unto him, Show us the Father, and we will be satisfied. And he said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you do not know me, Philip? 
He who has seen me has seen the Father. John 14.8 You see, everything in this world contains within itself the capacity for symbolic significance. Now here, my brother in the world of flesh and blood, my nephew in the world of flesh and blood, and yet in my dream, they are only symbols. Symbols that father and son do not know each other. So I tell you that you are the father of God's only begotten son, who is named David, but you don't know it. I tell you that David is your son, and you do not know it. But I can assure you the day will come that you will stand in the presence of David, and David will call you father, and you will know you are his father, and you will know he is your son. This mutual understanding between father and son will be accomplished, then the journey is over. So here in my dream my own brother and my nephew, and his name is Philip, I played the part of David bringing them together, who is David. The word David is defined in the biblical concordance as beloved, but also the uncle, the father's brother. Read it in Strong's biblical concordance. The father's brother is called David, so I am David, and yet I am the father of David, so I and my father are one. John 10.30 So as David, I make the announcement. These are mysteries, and mysteries of scripture are not things to be kept secret, but they are mysteries in nature. They confuse the rational mind because the mind wants to continue thinking on this level, the secular world, where you are a man and you have a child, therefore that's a father and that's a son, and that's all there is to it. You can't get beyond into the great mystery of Scripture, and the Bible is not secular history, it is divine history. It's something entirely different. They're not writing history, those who wrote. All the names are significant, and they tell an entirely different story that unfolds in the soul of man. And that soul of man is God. You are God. When you say, I am, that's he. There is no other God. But you're down in this world for the allotted time. You will bear the fardel of the allotted time. Then will come that moment in time that this tree that you are will be split from top to bottom and the spirit trapped set free. It will be set free and you will awaken to know who you really are, that you are God the Father. There is no other one. In the meanwhile, Dwell upon it, just dwell upon it. If you owned the earth tonight and death ended it all, what would it matter? Stalin thought he controlled the world and his little world, big as it was, it was so little. So he could kill 20 million people and then vanish. But he hasn't gone. He's restored to life in an environment best suited for the work yet to be done in him. He knows he's Stalin, which was an adopted name. He knows it, but he is not ruling Russia. Hitler isn't ruling Germany. They are all restored to life in an environment best suited for the work that must be done in them. For in the end, they too will be redeemed. Everyone will be redeemed because everyone is aware that he is, and to be aware that he is, is saying I am, and that is the name of God. But while they played their parts, they were used, and although they didn't know it, they were playing the part of God, and it was all moving towards an ultimate good. But they didn't know it. They thought differently. But forget the individual and come back to the scripture. For here, I am only here to fulfill scripture every night and night after night. Even though I have completed the entire story as told in the New Testament, I find myself reenacting the play, the Old Testament. For in the days when the story was written, there was only the Old Testament and it must all be fulfilled in me. Even to this morning, by simply dwelling the night before on the subject of tonight, wondering what I could add to it to make it more vivid to help everyone who is here. Then to come through the surface like coming from the depth of one's sea. And as the waves begin to break in your own consciousness, 
you have this little drama unfold before you. Your brother Fred, your nephew Philip, and they don't know each other, yet they are father and son. It's a perfect representation of the absence of consciousness or the lack of memory of the father-son relationship. My brother Fred has said to me so often in the past, of my four children, the one I do not understand is Philip. He is the first, and I never understood how he thinks. I've never understood what he does. He is completely strange to me, and all the time, I do not know exactly what is going through his mind. They are entirely opposite, yet they look like each other. Physically, they are a spitting image of each other. Only my brother is six foot three, and Philip is about five foot eight. Philip is a captain in the Marines, and for the last 10 years, he's been in the Orient. He's flown everything that we have manufactured, from the supersonic bombers to the supersonic fighters down to the helicopters. He's flown every kind of mission in the Orient. My brother Fred, who is a businessman, can't quite understand that desire. They have not a thing in common on this level, but on the spiritual level, father and son. But they do not know they are father and son. So when I introduced my brother Fred to my nephew, I had to tell him why he is the son of Flo and Fred. You know, my brother Fred and Flo. He said yes, but never identified himself with it. And then I came through to this level. So here everything in this world contains within itself the capacity for symbolic significance, but everything. There isn't a dream that is insignificant, but we are past masters of misinterpreting the dream. We can't quite put our teeth into it and see the story behind the story. But here, you're here for one grand purpose, to awaken from the dream. When you awaken, you will have power in yourself, as the Father has power in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have power in himself. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when those who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth. John 5.26 And they come forth when the power is exercised. There's only one note that can awaken you. That note will come to you when the boys and girls are playing in the streets of Jerusalem and Jerusalem is within you. Zion is within you. The Lord is within you. The whole drama unfolds within the imagination of man. Don't look for it in any part of the outer world. The whole thing takes place in man. One day you'll be so completely carried away with the beauty of something produced by a note that you will arrest the thing by arresting the activity in you. To arrest it, you'll have to sustain that note. That note being sustained will awaken you and you will awaken from the dream of life to discover that you are the Christ of Scripture and that you are the Jehovah of the Bible. There is no other God no other God, when you say, I am, that is he. But you don't know it until these things happen within you. There is a doubt. There is a question mark. I could tell you from now to the ends of time that you are, but not convincingly. You would remain unconvinced because you cannot be convinced until the father-son relationship becomes a reality. Not because you reasoned the whole thing out, but because you have experienced it. You must experience scripture to know how wonderful it is. So I can talk about it. I can be the greatest scholar in the world. I could know Hebrew, Greek, English, all the tongues of earth, and still not know anything about it. I could translate the words literally, do all these things in this morning's paper, the usual press agent for Billy Graham, and they said he took to the platform last night a Hebrew Bible given to him by the present Prime Minister of Israel. So what? He can't read Hebrew. So it's a gift a gift of a book that is completely sealed to him. And from what I've heard him say, although he speaks English, the English Bible is sealed to him, doesn't understand it at all. 
it's completely sealed. Now he goes beyond that into the Hebrew translation, and there he took it to the platform. If that is sacred, no, you are the sacred one. That is an external record of a drama that must unfold within you. That is the witness, the external witness. When it happens in you, that is the internal witness, and now you have the two witnesses. But you don't bring me one and say, Scripture said so and so and so and so, because you don't know what it's talking about. Have you experienced it? Have you experienced that chapter and that verse? Well then, come. Did it parallel it? We are now a witness to the truth of God's word. But if it has not happened in you, you cannot be called as a witness. It's only hearsay. That's what you heard. That's what you either read or that's what someone said. But you don't know it from experience. When you know something from experience, then you know it. Well now, is there another witness other than your own experience? Scripture. So you bring the written word and the internal experience and the two stand together. You need no one in the outer world to verify it. First of all, they couldn't. But you have in the depth of your own being a being who knows it, the being who experiences it, and you go blindly on regardless of what the world thinks or does. So here you are, the ones, and into this world we came. We were told exactly what to expect, that we would be slaves, oppressed for 400 years, but then we would come out with great possessions, and that possession is power. It's not power with money in the bank. It's power, creative power, that you can at will conjure anything and it stands as an objective fact before you. What do you need with anything in the world when you can at will create it because you have the power in yourself as the Father has power in Himself? And I and my Father are one, so I don't need anything. Take it all from me and I can recreate it. But if you can't create it and now it's taken from you, then you'll have to have it insured in the event they take it from you. So if they take it from you, you've got to go and collect and try to find something similar to what was taken from you, but you can't recreate it. But to have the power of creativity within you to create anything in this world, that is what you come out with when you come out of Egypt. But you will come out, may I tell you, one by one. You are too wonderful, you are unique, and you can't be duplicated. You can't be called in pairs. You're called one by one as you're told in the 27th chapter of Isaiah. And I will gather you one by one, O people of Israel. Everyone comes out one by one and the time when it will come. I'll tell you the night that it will come when this dream of which I spoke tonight takes place is the night you begin to dream of the city where the streets are full of boys and girls and they're so happy playing in the streets. Then you hear music and some part of that structure interests you to the point of wanting to arrest it for contemplation. You do arrest it by arresting in you an activity that seems to animate it, and as you arrest it, the note is now frozen but sustained. The tone continues and increases in volume, and that volume awakens you. That's the voice that you hear. He said they will hear my voice, the noise, the storm, wind, and when they hear it, they will come out from the tombs, even though the world calls them dead. At the end of these lectures, Neville would give two minutes of silence, followed by question and answers. Now, let us go into the silence. Now, are there any questions, please? Question. In the Song of Jerusalem, they say Blake composed the words and the words of that. Do you think he had that identical 
where the children were singing in the streets, do you think he had that identical vision? Neville says, I'm convinced of it. You read Blake's songs of innocence all about the children. Who could have written that but one who had the experience? Songs of innocence, songs of experience. What a beautiful poem. Oh, Blake was fully awake, but he had the capacity to tell it so beautifully in the written form. And so now we have 200 years, a work that grows and grows and grows. He was unknown in his day. And 200 years later, this unknown man is now a giant in the world of literature. Anyone who understands English literature, as I am told by others who are considered great scholars in the use of the tongue, if there were asked to name the six greatest users of the English tongue in all time, going back to Chaucer and coming through Spencer all the way up to the modern time, asks them to name the six greatest users of the English tongue, no one understanding the English tongue could admit the name of Blake in the Six. And he never went to school, never saw the inside of a school, yet you could not omit the name of William Blake in the list of six of the greatest users of the English tongue. You may put Shakespeare there first, and I presume most people would, but you could not omit Blake. You might change the others from time to time, you might change his position in the six, but you would not eliminate him from the six. Here is the great William Blake. I say Blake was completely awake. You go back and you read his beautiful poems, read Jerusalem. Why, if you understood it, you'd stand on your head. It's so beautiful. Everything about him is beautiful as far as I'm concerned. Question, inaudible. Answer, neither am I. I know you quoted it correctly. Yes, you have. You've quoted it correctly. I don't think it's Job. I don't think so. Nevertheless, it could be. You quoted it correctly. I'm familiar with that verse, but we are told in the 12th chapter of the book of Numbers that God speaks to man through the medium of dreams and makes himself known through vision, 12.6. So I would not discriminate between the old and the young as to the vision and the dream we all dream. There are some people who tell me and they're advanced in years that they've never dreamt in their lives. Well, they haven't recalled the dreams, but they have dreamt. They haven't brought it back to the surface and for reasons that I do not no, they just have not remembered. Very few people have had true vision. A vision is this. This is a vision. When you have a vision, you are awake in the dream, and it ceases to be a dream because you are awake in it. Now, this is a dream, but it ceases to be a dream in the moment I awake in the morning. I awake in a vision, and this is a vision. When you are in a vision, you can't change it. It seems so difficult to change like this seems difficult to change. For in a vision, everything seems to be independent of your perception of it. In a dream, if you know you're dreaming, you can change it. If a man knows this, although it is a vision, it is still a dream, he can change it. He can change it by assuming that things are other than what they appear to be. So the degree that he persuades himself that it is so, it will change to conform to his persuasion. Question, are dreams a form of astral projection? Neville says, no. No, it's not an astral projection. That's a term that I don't really use here. I've had out-of-the-body experiences time and time again, but voluntarily and involuntary, but they are not vision. That's not what I call a vision. A vision is not an automatic thing that just happens. You go to sleep and suddenly you are awake within the dream, but the true vision is fulfilling scripture, for these are the visions of Jehovah, and you fulfill them. You experience the visions of Jehovah to be Jehovah, so all that he did, you'll do, to be what he is. But an astral projection, no. I've had it voluntary from time to time, and I was well. Just turned 20 and involuntary. Question, inaudible. Neville says, dreams are very significant, but some dreams can be interpreted simply and others need the dream interpreter. As we're told in the story of Joseph, 
He could interpret Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh and the astrologers and magicians could not. They all failed. And he could interpret them, and they all came true as he interpreted the dream. If you take all dreams literally, then you're simply confusing yourself. Some dreams are literal, but most of them come in symbolic form. Now this morning with my brother, it's a normal thing to meet your brother. I met him at a hotel where he would stop perfectly normal for him to check in at the plaza. It would be normal for me to go in the plaza and register and check in and then meet my nephew. It would not feel to us that something was different about it. We are accustomed to living that way when we travel. We travel as we live at home, which is in a good manner. So I don't think it would be considered extravagant by any of us to check in the plaza and take whatever they quote a normal room. We live that way at home and we live that way when we travel. So to meet him, it's normal. To meet Philip, it's normal. But then to have Philip not know his own father and to have his father not know his own son, and I'm fully aware of what I'm doing, and then I came back with the full consciousness of what has happened, I must now interpret it symbolically. Because certainly my brother Fred is not unaware of the fact that he is the father of Philip, and Philip is not unaware of the fact that he is the son of my brother Fred. Yet in the dream they were strangers. I spoke of my brother Fred as another to my brother Fred. As he understood, he met him as though it were something different. Question inaudible. Neville says, no, I wouldn't give it that interpretation. I would give it the interpretation of Scripture, and Scripture only gives one true death and two births. I know that we have many schools of thought concerning reincarnation. They'll go back forever and forever, and I'm not questioning their right to entertain these thoughts. But I go along with Scripture. When you die unless you are born from above, you will find yourself restored in a body just like yours, but young, not a child, a young man about 20 placed in an environment not necessarily the year after your death. But as far as you are concerned, you haven't died. Only those who saw you go beyond and they couldn't reach you. But you could be placed in the environment 3000 or the environment 1000 for all these things are taking place now. It's a closed circle. This whole world is based upon the principle of a circular form and redemption is spiral and vertical. Redemption from this world is a spiral motion, while this world is on a circular principle as told in the book of Ecclesiastes. But man has little memory he can't remember. Even in this world he can't remember, he forgets. As he gets older and older, his memory gets shorter and shorter, he can't remember. And so we speak of things today that this has happened for the first time. Well, Ecclesiastes asks the question, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. I tell you, it has been of old in ages past. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there remembrance of things to come among those who will come after. 110. So we think it is all new. We're living in a new age, a new this, a new that, because we are on a very vast wheel and our memory does not go back that far. So it's like a wonderful play repeating itself over and over until that moment of redemption when you move vertically and horizontally in a spiral manner vertical to the horizontal motion. I'm out of time now. Good night. And this concludes J.E.N.P. Manuscripts by Neville Goddard. And so we get very little discussion of the difference in the manuscripts as advertised by the title and the beginning paragraph. But we get a very powerful discussion of his own experiences and the relationship of scripture to dreams and the Bible. Interestingly, he talks a little bit about Zechariah and Zechariah means 
Jehovah remembers. It makes me want to run out and maybe leaf through Zechariah again and get a feeling for it. That's the thing that this kind of material does is it inspires me to know more and to know further. I want to know if anybody has had the dream of the kids playing the piano. He says this is a common dream and did not describe it as such in earlier recitations of the promise. I love it when he mentions that as he's listening to this music, they become these geometrical patterns and I get amazing visuals when I read those sections. He said it a couple times now and we get it again here. He has an adoring discussion of William Blake, as he always does, and he always inspires me to read William Blake, as we've done on the channel. And we also have a very, very comprehensive discussion of dreams once again. We recently talked about dreams a little bit more in the episode, All Dreams Proceed from God. In this one, he is explaining that some dreams can be literal, some can be symbolic, and some can be visions, and he describes the difference between vision and anything else when you become lucid in the dream and you probably can't really change the environment. It's happening in some other sort of reality. And I would still ask, as always, are you having dreams or visions that recall scripture or have any similarity in feeling or form to the things that Neville Goddard is talking about? Please share with me. I would love to know. You can find all episodes of The Reality Revolution at therealityrevolution.com and welcome to The Reality Revolution.